Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Outer and Lower Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has stories about a couple of local businesses, including the end of the run for the Art House Theater in Provincetown, I've got stories about the departure of Brian Karlstrom from the Cape Cod National Seashore, as well as a toxic oil spill in Wellfleet. Weather Will is here with his exclusive WOMR Weekend Weather Outlook, and Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about the sad song of the substitute teacher. <laughs> As demand for the Massachusetts Emergency Assistance System grows, the state of Massachusetts has tapped 120 shelter units on Cape Cod to house migrants and displaced people. The number of units includes scattered apartments, congregate shelters, and rooms in motels and hotels. Joint Base Cape Cod is already at capacity, sheltering 62 families. Earlier this month, Governor Maura Healey's administration declared a state of emergency, citing an influx of migrants seeking shelter and other services. At the time, she said that influx included more than 20,000 people in state shelters. Healey called on the federal government to speed up work authorizations and shore up financial help. The crisis stems from the fact that more migrants are seeking shelter in Massachusetts, and as a right-to-shelter state, Massachusetts legally must provide eligible families with shelter through the Emergency Assistance Program. The program has been in place since the 1980s. But over the last year, the demand for family shelters has stretched the supply. As congregate sites fill, the state has turned to hotels and motels across the state as a last resort to meet capacity demands. On Cape Cod, migrants and displaced people are being housed in Bourne, East Ham, Hyannis, and North Falmouth. However, people staying in East Ham are due to be transferred soon to another site off Cape. In Yarmouth, state officials had planned to place up to 100 migrant and displaced families at the Yarmouth Resort, a motel with condominium ownership on Route 28 in West Yarmouth. But the plan was scrapped when it turned out that the building did not have a certificate of occupancy. Town Administrator Robert Rittenauer Jr. said problems with the location predate this migrant shelter issue. He said there were significant alleged zoning violations at the site and that property owners have been unresponsive to town officials seeking to bring the property up to code. The hotel failed a recent inspection, and notice of that failure went up on August 17th. The town got word that the state planned to use the Yarmouth Resort as a temporary shelter on August 23rd. The state has had a right-to-shelter law since 1983 that requires state officials to provide shelter and necessities to homeless parents with children, pregnant women, and migrant families. Money is set aside in the state budget that municipalities can tap to offset the costs of the program. Supplemental funding is available to school districts that have students housed in temporary emergency shelters, which can be used to cover educational support and transportation. 
The Art House Theater in Provincetown will soon close its doors after 17 years of hosting performances on Commercial Street. With a sublease that expires on November 1st, Mark Cortali knew the end was near. Cortali is the producing artistic director of the Art House, which is attached to the 1620 Brew House. The building occupied by the Art House and 1620 Brew House is owned by Ben DeRuyter, but he leased the building to Bobby Limbertos and Bena Jashari Limbertos in 2022. Plans for the space after November 1st have not been announced, but according to Cortali, it could be converted into a nightclub. DeRuyter did not respond to a request for comment for this story. Formerly the new art cinema, the Art House, opened in 2006 with Kurt Richardson as programming artistic director. Richardson left the theater in 2008, resulting in DeRuyter taking charge of programming until 2011 when Cortali took over the role. During his first season, the Art House hosted Tony Award nominee and winner Christine Ebersole during Carnival Weekend, which helped kickstart a stream of stars that the theater would host in the years to come. Cortali said it opened the door to people like Patti LuPone, Audra McDonald, Sutton Foster, and Cheetah Rivera, who all came during the following year. Marilyn May began performing at the Art House in 2011 and has been coming back every year since. May will help say goodbye to the Art House with a run of shows that ends on September 2nd. Looking toward the future, Cortali said he hopes to find a new, intimate space one day, but in the meantime is setting his sights on producing in New York City, following a sold-out run of Days of Wine and Roses, his first big off-Broadway show. He also plans on continuing to bring talent to Provincetown Town Hall. Several major properties in Harwichport have changed hands recently, including the building that houses the Hot Stove Saloon, which was acquired by one of Harwichport's largest property owners, Dennis Miller. Although Miller has added to his collection of properties with the recent purchase of the Hot Stove Building, he has also sold a couple of buildings in the village in the last couple of months. The building on Route 28 that houses the hot stove is also home to an art gallery, a business office, and a few additional units on the second floor. It's located across the street from the Harwichport Commons Complex, which is also owned by Miller. Miller also owns several other commercial and residential properties in the village. The hot stove building is iconic, and Miller said he made a mutual long-term commitment with restaurant owner Gabe Leidner for the eatery to remain there for another decade or longer. The Guild of Harwich Artists will also remain in their gallery space. Registry of Deeds records show that Miller recently sold a pair of adjacent buildings in Harwichport that house the Nines Art Gallery and the Candy Shack. The buyers were Luther Bates and Lauren DiFernando, owners of the Nines Art Gallery. DiFernando said the gallery will not be going anywhere. As for the abutting Candy Shack business, she said that the owners have a multi-year lease and will be staying around too. Miller also owns a nearly three-quarter acre vacant lot across from Cumberland Farms, which has been approved for a restaurant, coffee shop, and two retail spaces on the first floor, with five one-bedroom apartments on the second floor. While a building permit has been issued for that development, Miller said the owners of the restaurant that was to anchor the building decided not to move in. That led to a decision not to move forward with construction immediately and to focus instead on the hot stove project. 
The Cape Symphony has launched its search for a successor to conductor and artistic director Young Ho Pak. Executive Director Michael Alba said the organization isn't looking to rush into anything as it tries to find the right person to take the symphony to the next level. Although the application period will close at the end of September, he said the process will take place over the next two years. Successors will be sought with the help of some internal headhunting by members of the symphony who each have their own networks and ideal candidates in mind. Alba said he expects anywhere from 300 to 400 applicants throughout the application period. A committee will sort through the candidates and hopefully present three to four finalists by the end of the year, who will then serve as guest conductors. The plan is to invite them to program concerts for the next season, with each applicant getting one concert to work as an audition. A final decision on the symphony's next music director will be made following the 2024 to 2025 season, just in time for planning to begin for the 2025 to 2026 season. Alba said he hopes whoever steps into the void left by Pac's departure helps usher in a new connection between the symphony and its community. The symphony announced that Pac would be leaving his role after 17 years in May to continue leading the Fremont Symphony Orchestra in California. His last show with the Cape Symphony was a free outdoor concert, August 24th, at the Salt Pond Visitor Center Amphitheater in East Ham. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A 14-year-old boy tried to drown a black juvenile at a pond in Chatham in July, according to a statement from Cape and Islands District Attorney Robert Gallibois on Thursday, who said the incident was racially motivated. The teen, who is white, was indicted by a Barnstable County grand jury on attempted murder and assault with a dangerous weapon charges. On July 19th at Goose Pond in Chatham, The indicted 14-year-old met with a black juvenile male and another white juvenile male, according to the statement from Galibois. The white male who was indicted is accused of picking up a stone and threatening the black boy. The white boy allegedly spoke to the black boy using a racial slur. The three boys then went into the water, but the black juvenile put on a life jacket and told the two white boys that he couldn't swim. When the three of them were in the water, the indicted white boy pulled on the life jacket the black boy was wearing and submerged him four or five times, causing distress, according to Galibois. The third young juvenile laughed and called the black juvenile George Floyd, and the incident continued when the indicted boy went underwater and attempted to pull the black boy underwater by his feet. The incident ended when the black juvenile called for help and a bystander went into the water and helped him to shore. After a dangerousness hearing in the Barnstable Juvenile Court on Thursday, the juvenile defendant was determined to be dangerous and was ordered held without bail. The defendant is scheduled for a pretrial conference on September 13th. When Brian Karlstrom became superintendent of the Cape Cod National Seashore in April of 2018, he told the Cape Cod Times that he wanted to continue the good work of George Price and that he was wide open to see what the community needs are. 
Five years later, Karlstrom is leaving Cape Cod to become Deputy Regional Director of the Intermountain Region of the National Park Service, which includes 85 national park units in eight western states. His posting in Denver, Colorado begins October 8th. Karlstrom is also leaving the Dune Shacks Historic District Preservation and Use Plan as a plan in name only. The public meetings and community outreach that Price conducted to inform the use plan have been cited by Karlstrom in defense of the Park Service's current leasing of the Dune Shacks, a move that has generated intense local criticism, especially for the option to bid an unlimited amount of rent. Karlstrom's new assignment was confirmed by Rich Delaney, executive director of the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown and former chair of the Cape Cod National Seashore Advisory Commission. Karlstrom's presentation to the Provincetown Select Board on Monday was preceded by almost an hour of public comments dominated by dune shack dwellers lodging complaints over the seashore's handling of the public leasing process. Select Board members had questions for Karlstrom about the dune shacks, but he refused to answer most of them. According to correspondence sent to the Dune Shack leaseholders, the Park Service plans to notify winners of the current leasing contest by September 29th. Karlstrom will begin work in Colorado 10 days later. State officials want to see the cleanup of a nearly two-year-old oil spill at a Wellfleet business and recently threatened the owner with fines if the work isn't done. The spill occurred in September of 2021 when landscapers from J.F. Young accidentally damaged a feed line to an above-ground oil tank behind the box lunch on Briar Lane. Heating oil from the tank leaked onto the ground and into a nearby wetland, contaminating vegetation and some standing water. Wellfleet box lunch owner Catherine McNutt hired Frank Corp Environmental to perform an initial emergency cleanup, and over the next several days they installed oil-absorbent booms in the wetland and siphoned out more than 10,000 gallons of oily water with a vacuum truck. Workers dug up contaminated soil and vegetation, which they covered in plastic sheeting and left on the property. The private well that supplies drinking water to the box lunch was tested for petroleum contamination in November of 2021, and none was detected. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection was notified shortly after the spill occurred, which triggered a set of cleanup requirements and deadlines. But after that initial burst of remedial action, progress stalled. None of the required benchmarks was met, after November of 2021. The piles of contaminated soil remain on the site today. The property owner's overdue response actions led the state agency to issue a notice of noncompliance. McNutt has since hired Weston and Sampson engineers who provided the overdue paperwork, including a site investigation report to the DEP by its July deadline. Weston and Sampson has begun its investigation of the site, sampling the soil and installing groundwater monitoring wells. One of the two surface water samples exceeded the limit for several hydrocarbons. Some soil samples also contained contamination at levels requiring cleanup. 
In its report, Weston and Sampson outlines the next phase of work, which will focus on further assessment of soil, groundwater, and surface water. Engineers will evaluate the risk to human health and the environment and determine if further remedial measures are warranted. They expect Phase 2 to be completed by 2025. Harwich Treasurer Tax Collector Betty Clark McClay was terminated on August 21st at the end of her six-month probationary period. Select Board Chair Mary Anderson said Clark McClay's termination is a personnel issue and she couldn't comment further. Clark McClay came to Harwich from Marion, where she served as an assistant treasurer tax collector. Town Administrator Joseph Powers was unavailable for comment on the matter. Frustration levels are high at Harwich Town Hall over the numerous departures and retirements of department heads over the past couple of years. Several positions have yet to be filled. Last week, Select Board member Donald Howell declined to vote to affirm the appointment of a new Natural Resources Director, saying he would not vote to affirm appointments until the Board has a full discussion on why people are leaving. The town has posted the availability of the Treasurer Tax Collector position on its website. The position is advertised as a 35-hour-per-week job with a salary range of $88,000 to $109,000 per year. Wellfleet will host a lottery for four one-and-a-half-acre deep-water shellfish grants on Indian Neck on October 17th. Originally announced as two three-acre grants by Shellfish Constable Nancy Chavetta in November of last year, the select board voted in January to divide the area into four grants. Applications are now open and will close on September 29th. The area was previously farmed by the Aquaculture Research Corp. and Allison and Buddy Payne, ARC forfeited its grant because the company is not domiciled in Wellfleet, a town requirement for the holders of shellfish grants. The Paynes gave up their grant because they weren't meeting minimum productivity requirements. In the last lottery, held in December of 22, 19 applicants vied for two one-acre grants on Egg Island. Chavetta said that she had originally intended to hold the lottery in March, but staffing shortages in the shellfish department, as well as the development of a dredging mitigation plan, pushed back the timeline. The four grants, because they were subdivided and moved inshore, constitute entirely new grants and will require proper permitting with the state, the Army Corps of Engineers, and the Wellfleet Conservation Commission before grant holders will be able to use them. Applicants must live in Wellfleet and have held a commercial shellfishing permit for at least three of the four calendar years preceding the date of the application. For more information about how to apply for the Wellfleet Shellfish Grant Lottery, you can visit the town website at wellfleet-ma.gov. And for Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn.
This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. Happy first day of meteorological autumn. And to quote an old English proverb, good things come to those who wait. After enduring one of the cloudiest and wettest summers on record, the best stretch of weather for the entire summer is here and just in time for the Labor Day weekend. The last time we saw this stretch of sun-filled days was, you guessed it, Memorial Day weekend. A pattern change is allowing a huge ridge of high pressure to expand over the eastern third of the country. And during the weekend, the axis of this ridge will slide slowly eastward, allowing some midsummer heat and humidity now over the Midwest to begin moving over New England and the Outer Cape by Sunday and Labor Day. Fair, unseasonably warm and humid weather should linger into Thursday, but beyond that, things get unclear. Idalia will likely stall near Bermuda and the ridge of high pressure bringing us the beautiful weather could play a role in steering the remnants or moisture from Idalia back toward the East Coast next weekend. But even if that doesn't happen, an approaching front should bring increased chances for showers and thunderstorms. So enjoy the next six or seven days and stay tuned to all future tropical updates. Elsewhere across the nation, the big story is Idalia, the first major hurricane ever to make landfall over the Big Bend of Florida and the strongest hurricane in that area since 1896. It brought a record storm surge along with hurricane force winds, flooding, and tornadoes that extended well inland into parts of Georgia, the Carolinas, and even Southeast Virginia. Idalia is now well off the Southeast coast, but will likely stall near Bermuda as steering currents collapse. Meanwhile, a stationary front this afternoon across the Gulf of Mexico will trigger more tropical downpours targeting areas already affected by the hurricane. And the heat dome is back and once again building over the middle of the country with blazing, searing sunshine and triple-digit heat as far north as Minneapolis, as temperatures average some 25 degrees above normal. And finally, climate change, sea level rise, and storm surge. The average global sea levels have risen nearly a half foot since 1900, but two-thirds of that sea level rise has occurred in the last 50 years. Hurricane Adalia brought a record storm surge to Cedar Key, and the storm hit at low tide. Imagine if the center of the storm or eye wall had been closer and moved ashore during high tide. The consequences would have been catastrophic. Sea level rise and warmer oceans are leading to stronger hurricanes with more extreme storm surges. And no matter how powerful a hurricane's winds are, water continues to be the culprit as far as the number of fatalities. In fact, over the last decade, both storm surge and fresh water flooding accounted for 68% of all deaths. And now my exclusive WOMR Labor Day weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. A high rip current risk is in effect through this evening. This afternoon, bright sunshine and beautiful. Highs around 72. Tonight, clear and comfortably cool. Lows around 53. Saturday, abundant sunshine and continued very pleasant. Highs around 73. 
Sunday, partly to mostly sunny and more humid, highs around 75. And the Labor Day outlook, mostly sunny, warm, and humid, highs around 80. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful holiday weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. This being back to school week, I've been flashing on my own back to school memories, not as a student or a teacher, but a creature well beneath both of them in status, inferior to the custodians and the lunchroom ladies, mocked even by the classroom aides, a substitute teacher. The summer after I graduated college, I took the best paying job I could find, working for the Boston Public Schools, which paid $75 a day big money in the inflation-wracked 1970s, even for an occupation that combined the skills of a security guard, a nanny, a party clown, and a freestanding punching bag. Although I had graduated with honors in English literature, those in charge of assignments couldn't care less, and however much I dreaded waking up to the cold voice of a 6 a.m. telephone call, I badly needed the work. Ira Wood? Yes, do you speak Spanish? No. Please arrive for a 7th grade Spanish class no later than 8.15 this morning. Do you need the address? Unfortunately, I did not, because all the schools to which I was usually assigned were much publicized in the headlines for stabbings, bathroom brawls, attacks on teachers, and the like. To be clear, back in the 70s, these were students the system had given up on, and my main assignment was keeping them safely in the classroom until the bell rang. Thankfully, attendance itself could take 20 minutes. Hi, everybody. I'm Mr. Wood. You look more like Mr. Nappyhead to me. I got that pretty often in reference to my hair back then, a large puffy afro about a foot in diameter. I began the roll call. Carbo, Peter. No one responded. Johnson, Daniel, utter silence. There are students who completely ignore you, who remain collectively deaf to anything you say. There are students who groan with every request you make, however logical or mundane, and others who gape as if they had never seen anything remotely like you, as if you were a creature so alien to their experience that you barely registered as human. But I soldiered on. Carbo, Peter, I repeated. Screw you, said a voice in the front row. He wore sneakers the size of anti-gravity boots and sat in the position commonly assumed for a pelvic exam. Johnson, Daniel, just say here, please. Mr. Johnson pointed to his crotch. Here, please. Munson, Robert, no answer. Henry Totoro, again no answer, called Robert Munson a meathead. A chair flew back. You said that? The accusation was angrily refuted. Did not. I checked them both off. Totoro, here. Munson, here. Sneakers like that. Pretty good, nappy, he said. After attendance, we buckled down to my lesson plan, a dramatic reading of a stack of comic strips, one of the many educational resources I always carried in my briefcase. 
In the course of my career as a substitute teacher, I had been required to teach classes from kindergarten to 12th grade, special needs, shop, and physical education, never once given a lesson plan. But I learned to come prepared with a homemade syllabus every day, and over time, improvised finger puppet circuses, game shows, scrap paper origami lessons, and popcorn golf. I once filmed an 8 millimeter movie of a 5th grade gym class doing a conga line through the cafeteria. Nobody learned a thing, I assumed. It was all a waste of time, mine and the students, not to mention taxpayers' money. Although once, many years later, a balding man in his 30s stopped me on Newbury Street. Hey, wait! He had a little girl in hand, probably his daughter, and he ran up to me excitedly. Weren't you the guy who came into my classroom one day and taught us how to make paper birds? That was so cool, man, he said to his daughter. That was one of the coolest things that ever happened in school. What's your name again? Mr. Nappyhead, I said, realizing that he had actually taught me something, that what we learn with pleasure we never forget. But you know me as Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz with Joel Shaw on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.